the United States of France. You know, Americans like to think of themselves as being great risk takers, rolling back frontiers and imbibed since birth with the spirit of entrepreneurship. And to an extent that's true and it attracts people like me. Yet what if, what if, despite the technology success stories that have at least superficially transformed society, there's an increasing desire for safety? What if we're just becoming an old, cranky, more risk-averse society? What if we're more like Europe and those poster children for sclerosis, France, Germany and Italy? Welcome to the Bloomberg Benchmark, a happy podcast about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss, Executive Editor for Global Economics in Washington today. And I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg in Washington too. So let's be sure we have that right, Dan. We have a society known for entrepreneurship. We have technological prowess and progress that we've made in the past 50 years, 100 years, even just in the last 10 years. And yet we're talking about our society becoming so sclerotic that we're comparing it to France. Technology may have just released our inner status, and our guest today is going to explain how. Tyler Cowen, Chair in Economics at George Mason University and author of The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream. And full disclosure, Tyler, you're also a Bloomberg View columnist. That's correct. Well, welcome to the show. And do I have that right? Our great technological progress, matching music matching dates, film choice, political and social preferences of our neighborhood. That's all a bit misleading. Actually, it doesn't lead to progress, but ultimately a desire for stasis. Do I have that right? Yes. American culture has lost a lot of its dynamism. We're at the point where so many parents, they're afraid to even let their children play outside. We medicate ourselves at much higher rates. We move across state borders at much lower rates. That's fallen by about 50% from its peak. Our productivity and even innovation are down. And if you look at our best innovations, like Netflix or Amazon, they're so often about finding a way just to stay at home. So are these kinds of innovations that you're talking about, are they just not on the level of, say, the light bulb or sewers, You know, the kind of arguments that Robert Gordon has also made? Is it the pace of innovation that's slowing? Is it the level of innovation? What is it? It's both the pace and the kind of innovation that have been slowing. So many recent innovations, they're about enjoying your leisure time better, you know, which is great. But the actual productivity of our economy is down significantly. Even at work, people spend a decent chunk of their time checking social media. And in so many areas, ranging from getting around this country to infrastructure, we're actually moving slightly backwards. So is it a misconception that our society, even Silicon Valley, is really a source of great innovation anymore? Well, Silicon Valley is a source of great innovation. But I think the point is we don't have so many more such sources in today's America. And in the past, we used to have a lot of them. You ask people, what's a big dynamic company today? They might say Uber. Uber's nice. I took an Uber to get here. But it's really just Did a slightly... abused? I wasn't abused, but I felt this is nice. It's a slightly quicker taxi cab, a little bit cheaper. When that's the big deal in your economy, you're not moving forward that quickly. Right. So you spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about dating services, 
music services, and the degree of specialization and seemingly infinite choice within these narrow bands of specialization, and that that's symptomatic of the broader problem. Can you expand on that a bit? Well, I think music is a good example of how near infinite choice leads to a kind of stasis. I can access almost any recorded music I want to. Using my iPad, one can go to YouTube, there's Spotify, iTunes, so many ways to do it. You can listen to, to what you want, when you want. But the end result of that is that people are now spending much less money, much less time supporting new music. And I think we've become less creative. In any one moment, it feels good because you're hearing what you want. But over time, again, we're cutting into our stock of creativity. So technology has kind of walled us off. It hasn't unleashed us on the world. It's imprisoned us within our own prejudicial choices. But in a fairly comfortable prison, of course. So keep that in mind. This is happening because we wanted it to happen. But I also think it's going to prove dangerous in the longer run. So what is the underlying thread that connects all these uh, vignettes, these economic vignettes that you bring together in your book that have resulted in what you call the complacent class. One thing that came to mind for me uh, is another show that we had recently. We had the historian Walter Scheidel from Stanford University. He was he has a new book out that talks about how inequality grows except in times when there's uh, total war. Or oh yes, I blurred that or, book. Very good. Uh, or, or, or black death, or you know something dep pretty depressing like that. Is this a natural function of our society just being stable and without a major war for a long time? It's a natural phenomenon. You see related things happening in Japan, in most of Western Europe. So it's because security and safety, they really do feel good, right? Well, yeah. And, and you also compare, you compare the situation. You, you look at China. You talk about some of the innovation there. You, you profile the founder of Alibaba. Uh, briefly in your book, but isn't the reason for some of the activity we've seen in China a function of the fact that that society was closed off for 40-some years uh, before they've really unleashed a wave of, uh, uh, of uh, economic opening and innovation in the last two or three decades? Well, for sure, some of China is just playing catch-up, but a lot of their dynamism now, it's actually on the frontier. If you look at WeChat, it's better than any messaging system that's come from Silicon Valley. If you look at electronic payments, the Chinese are way ahead of us. In biomedicine, they may end up ahead of us quite soon. So China is not just copying and growing fast because it was poor. It's remarkable how well China has used its dynamism in a number of areas actually to leap to that frontier. China is like the United States circa 1920. And yet China is facing its own demographic challenges. You talk a little bit about the demographic challenges facing the U.S. in the book. What many people listening to this podcast might not know is that China's labor force is shrinking. Its population is aging. You know, this is not this sort of low-cost 10% growth per annum nirvana anymore. Sure. China may itself face a lot of these problems, but they have one thing that we don't. They have so many talented people in the countryside still who haven't been mobilized yet, and that may help them forestall these processes quite a bit. And it's not that you're saying the U.S. economy is doing terribly right Not now. at all. Unemployment yeah. is low. Uh, things are fairly stable. Indices of investment and share price volatility are doing fine. 
But there's a long-run cost when you stop being dynamic. And A, eventually you can't pay off your debt. And B, in the short run, when the pie is fixed, your politics becomes worse and your governance becomes dysfunctional. And believe it or not, there are actually some signs of that happening right now. I'm shocked to hear it. I would never have guessed. So can you actually go back to a state or, or rekindle the dynamism in the U.S. economy, even if you had a hugely disruptive event like like a war, uh, you know, you you still have a lot of these same uh, trends that are happening. You know, you, you quote the the great sociologist Aziz Ansari in in your book, talking about how mating has become, you know, a, a much less random process than it was in the past. Uh, you know. We have a lot of technological uh, innovations that are just – we're just not going to go back to society where you know, we're, we're listening to random LPs at the music store and trying to decide whether or not we, we like them. Is, is there really a way to become a more dynamic economy again? I think we will have to become dynamic again. Keep in mind the least complacent class in this country are the immigrants. And as long as we keep on taking in immigrants, I think we'll have the chance to refresh our own dynamism. This country tends to do quite well when the chips really are down and we've exhausted all other options. We all know the famous Winston Churchill quote, America will, will do the right thing when it's gone through every other choice. So in the medium to long run, I'm very optimistic about this country. But I also think the time for those big bumps has come now. And I'm trying to give people a framework for understanding why isn't this the idyllic future of 3% growth that maybe so many of us were expecting in the 1990s? But we're not going back. We're, we're not exactly going to be letting a ton of immigrants into the country. We're, we're, we're recording this on the day that uh, the, the Trump administration has announced the new revised ban on immigrants from six nations, uh, ban on refugees or temporary ban, if you want to call it that. Aren't we moving in a direction where if you have to open up the economy that way, there's just not a political appetite for it? I don't at all favor that ban, but I think it's striking actually how weak it is relative to the overall flow of migration. And the chance of getting a big deal immigration reform may possibly be higher under Trump than, say, it would have been under a President Clinton. So we may be taking a pause from higher levels of immigration, but I don't yet see that trend as being reversed. Just to get back to this point about how it may be more likely under President Trump than perhaps under President Clinton, is that a Nixon goes to China analogy you're drawing there? That's a Nixon goes to China analogy. If Trump would sign off on a plan, Republicans would have the cover to vote yes on it. I'm not quite predicting that, but I think mm. under Clinton, the chance of that would have been close to zero. You had, you know, Rubio and Cruz and everyone else, you know, jumping on top of the idea of the wall. Whereas now there's at least a possible path forward. But I would say if we really do cut off immigration, America's dynamism probably will not recover. Do you detect any support in the country for a cutting off of immigration per se? I mean, you know, it's only last year that I took the oath. And I guess, you know, hundreds of people like me did that today. At its core, there is still sympathy for a strong immigration program. It's just a discussion about what that program looks like. Do I have that right? I agree completely. But imagine we had another terror attack and it were somehow connected to immigrants and we had a skillful executive branch determined to cut off immigration. 
Now, as far as I can tell, we don't actually have any of those things. But it's not impossible to think we might get all three, and that's how it would happen. But my default scenario is we will go through a major social, political, and possibly even economic crisis, hit those bumps in the next, say, 10 to 15 years rather rapidly, and uh, basically decide we're going to do things right once again. And I think we'll see a more dynamic America, which is turning information technology into all the different parts of its economy and making most of the economy dynamic, not just your Facebook page. But that's not right around the corner, right? The world we're going to live in is going to feel very bad, look less liberal, possibly involve more foreign conflict, and our government will appear and indeed not be up to the task of doing that much about it. So this reminds me of a couple of themes from uh, other shows that we've done. We had Robert Gordon on uh, a few months ago, and he talked about his book and how uh, and his research showing that he thinks the best days of American growth are behind us. Uh, and then on another show, we had Eric Brynjolfsson from MIT on, who takes an opposite view that maybe we're underestimating the you know, the, the the productivity, the innovations that are out there in Silicon Valley and, and how they're going to contribute to our society. What I'm hearing from you is, you know, in some ways it's it's a hybrid. You you take you take one part of Gordon, which is that, you know, we we're not getting as much from innovation as we used to, and yet you do talk about some of the promise of technology and if we go through an upheaval in society we'll we'll get that. Is that Fair. Absolutely. The pessimists are right about the last 18 years. The optimists are right about the future. Given a choice, I'd rather be right about the future. You talk a bit in the book about de Tocqueville. Now, all of a sudden, we're hearing about him from everywhere. Why is he so on vogue these days? He's the deepest theorist of America who's still relevant, still worth reading, still highly readable. So Tocqueville produced the, you know, the classic portrait of America through French eyes, through Western European eyes. I think of my book, in a sense, as trying to write a portrait of contemporary America, but through Chinese eyes, or the lens of another emerging economy. How do we look to what the world actually is these days, and not just to a bunch of French bureaucrats? And then I think we look pretty stagnant and complacent. Do you think more Americans should spend more time in their own country? Well, there's a distinction between what's good for you individually and what's good for broader society. Insofar as individuals in America would take more risk, change more things in their lives, travel more abroad, I'm quite convinced this would be good for the country as a whole. But all of that costs money. It, it involves chance. So it's not, in every case, good for those particular individuals. And it's exactly that collective action dilemma that has gotten us to where we are. You talk in your book about the federal budget. You almost seem to be describing the budget, the structure of it, as a microcosm of what ails us. Absolutely. The federal government budget is becoming more and more of an insurance company through Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, programs which do serve some very valuable functions. But when they take up so much of your budget, when so much of the money we have is locked in, not available for innovation, not available to spend on the future, not there for discretionary spending, I feel we're actually making our future riskier. And that's because there's this political desire for safety, which ultimately comes from constituents. Correct. But when the next emergency comes, be it a foreign conflict, North Korea with nuclear weapons, a pandemic, whatever it may be, we do not now have that fiscal freedom 
an institutional and also ideological flexibility to respond the way, say, an earlier America put a man on the moon in seven years' time. So back to Dan's original point, are we still America or is this country becoming France? Is it already France? We're still America. I mean, France itself is a quirky country, possibly on the verge of voting for its own strange candidate and disrupting its own complacency, for the worse, I would say. Uh, I think we're trying to be more like Denmark, most of all in our cities, but a country of 320 million people with so much ethnic and intellectual diversity can't do a good job of being Denmark. We need an, a new story about the United States. I've only been to Denmark once, but Copenhagen strikes me as a very livable city. It's an extremely livable city. Keep in mind, that's not the country as a whole. But Denmark works as a small country because it's tightly knit, and ultimately it is borrowing a lot of protection and also innovation from larger countries, which is fine. I love Denmark. The United States cannot do the same thing. Did you ever watch the Danish political drama Borgen? Borgen is perhaps my favorite TV show. I've seen every episode. Okay, so she grapples with this. Uh, Birgit Nyborg is the fictional prime minister in Borgen. Borgen is the parliament compound in Copenhagen. It's kind of a Danish West Wing. Now, the heroine of the show, Birgit Nyborg, grapples with how to square the reality of governing with her instinctual social democratic tendencies. Now, looking at how the show worked out and how, you know, the creators of that show sort of leave it hanging a little bit at the end, any lessons for us? She's a wise leader in the show. I think by the end she realizes that although she's a social democrat, Denmark has to be about more than just stability. She realizes how conservative a lot of her constituents are and that she has to be PM for the whole country and not just for her party. But does she succeed in turning around a malaise that Denmark has as well in its productivity numbers, as does this country? She doesn't because it's so deeply dug into all of our societies. There is no single magic bullet. In the end, she leaves to be foreign minister. That's correct. Looking abroad to do something where she feels something can be done. Where can I watch this show? Netflix or order the discs on Amazon. It's one of the best TV shows ever made, Borgen. How many hours is it? Three seasons. All right. Well, I'll, I'll get on that for, uh, for next time when we have our discussion of uh, Danish politics and Danish television. Well, Tyler, it's been great. Um, I think it's been great. Kind of depressing, but there is still this hope at the end that, you know, America has this capacity to reinvent itself. I would just say the dedication of the book is, quote, to the rebel in each of us. So complacency does not reign in every regard. The dynamism is still there. We simply need to rediscover it. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Casts, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Scott Landman. Dan is at, at Moss underscore Eco. And our guest is at, at Tyler Cowen, C-O-W-E-N. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Alec McCabe. Thanks for listening. See you next time.